it's been a it's been a busy week. So um, hopefully this will be interactive, engaging. So when I, I had a whole bunch of different sort of topics that they were like, well, we want you to share some of your stories, and I can do that through a number of themes. But as I thought about some of the different themes that would overlay sort of my crazy career, um, one that really stood out was the concept of opposites. And one of the things I learned early on is that opposites are really key to all innovation, all creativity, and really all sort of success and significance. So what I thought I would do today is share with you some of the ways that I have used opposites to tackle new adventures, to change the way I look at things. And then what I'm going to do is go through kind of each step in my career from the time I, well, actually from Georgia Tech. I started it at Georgia Tech. Um, so from each step, I'll give you an example of how I used it. And then at the end, I just have sort of some general um, sort of advice takeaways. Um, but feel free to interrupt me at any time. So um, I'm very fluid here. When you think about the opposite, you know, people think about, okay, you're bucking the trend, you're a contrarian, you challenge assumptions, and all of that is true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that doing the opposite means you're breaking the rules. Because I'll be honest, I was a rule follower growing up. My sister was not. My sister accounts for every gray hair on my parents' head. I was the rule follower, but I always question things. So I love this graphic because doing the opposite can very much mean that you challenge assumptions without going outside the rules. It just means that you question the way things are done and maybe you do them differently, but it doesn't mean you have to be the troublemaker renegade. Um, and I think a lot of times people think that if you're the rule follower, then you don't take risk. And I don't think that's true. I think you can absolutely be a rule follower and still take risks and still challenge assumptions and still be really creative. So this is one of my favorite quotes. A word without an opposite meaning is meaningless. Isn't that interesting? Everything has opposites, if it means anything. And if you can think about challenging yourself to do things the opposite way you've done them before, usually what it does is it takes your brain out of its comfort zone. And it challenges you to look at something from a completely different perspective. So when we think about my favorite words are curiosity, creativity, and innovation. And when you think about creativity, it's really the ability to look at the same thing as everyone else, but to see something different. Everybody can do that. And I wish someone had told me that when I was younger, because I was the kid in high school who was really good at math and science, that's why I came here, and I can't sing, dance, or draw for the life of me. And so I was not tagged as creative. Creative were those people that could draw cool things. And yet, it wasn't until I got further into my career that I realized I am amazingly creative. But my creativity comes out in problem solving, not in artistic pursuits. So for me, creativity is the ability to look at the same thing as everyone else and see something different. And this is just two great examples of that happening. But when you look at innovation, innovation means taking that creativity and adding action. So I hear people all the time say they're innovative. Well, you're not if you haven't done anything. If you come up with a bunch of ideas and put them on a flip chart and then put them in your office, that is not innovative. Could be creative, but it's not innovative until you've taken action. And so my image of innovation is a spiral. 
because it's opposites. All innovation goes through opposites. But it's important to note that opposite is not like a pendulum because the opposite on a pendulum goes from A to B, back to A, back to B. It never goes outside of that path. But the opposites on a spiral go from one extreme to the other, but always moving forward. So as we talk about opposites, that's the image I want you to have in your mind, because that's what innovation is. It's going through a series of opposites, but always evolving forward. When you think about opposites, it's challenging reality, right? The biggest barrier to all innovation is the way you've always done it. So anytime you come up with an idea and people say that won't work, we've tried it before, that's reality, right? This isn't the way we've always done it. That's reality. So in order to break reality, you have to think of the opposite. And I think that innovation always happens when you take two opposites and put them together. When you juxtapose those opposites, that's where your greatest ideas happen. So I'm going to give you four ways that I have used it. And I'm going to give you an example of each. <clears throat> the first way is what I call the anti-definition. So think about you're working with a project team and you're trying to solve a problem. What's typically going through your head is I have to find a solution to this problem. How do I solve it? I would say you should actually ask yourself the opposite. What would I never do? What would I get fired if I did? What would I get an F on my grade if I did? Like, ask yourself the opposite, because you've got to stretch your brain outside of its comfort zone, which is, how do I solve this problem? When you ask, how do I solve the problem, you already have rails. You already have guardrails, and you can't get outside of it. So I always ask myself, what would I never do? If I'm trying to come up with a solution to improve this, this remote, what would I never do with it? Not what would I do? And I'll, I'll give you some examples. The second one is what I call defiance. So anybody who knows me knows that if I throw out an idea and your response is that won't work, that is for darn sure what I'm gonna spend the rest of the day focused on. And you can make anything work by changing something. So if you have, a, if you have an idea and somebody says that won't work, ask yourself what would I have to change to make it work? You can make anything work. Now, it may be that what you have to change is critical, and in the end, you come back around and decide that it's not going to work the way you thought. But you can make anything work if you change things. So you have to go through and say, what would I have to change? Do I have to change the customer? Do I have to change the, the engineering behind it? Do I have to change the material? Do I have to change the price point? What do I change? So when someone tells you that won't work, don't ever accept that. The third one is what I call creative reconstruction. So you often hear about like creative destruction. But reconstruction is you could take any product, any service, any company, any industry, any city, and you can trace it, take its assets, right? You can break anything into its assets, break it into its parts. Take each part and say, what would happen if it went away? What do I have? What am I going to do with it? Who would buy it? How do I sell it? And then take that asset that you just got rid of and ask yourself, what if that's the only asset I had? What would I do? So breaking it down into its parts and then taking each part to the extreme will completely change the way you look at it. And you can do that with any company, any product. And the last one is what I call anti-consulting. 
my consulting friends over here, Gene, will like this. When I came out of Georgia Tech and I started as a consultant, I learned two words that have always driven me crazy, benchmarking and best practices. Because those two words are great if your goal is to keep up, but they're awful words if your goal is to get ahead. Because if all you're going to do is benchmark yourself against the competition, that's not setting a very high bar. And best practices is whoever's doing it the best already. And so to me, scenario-based thinking is where would I never look? So don't look at people or industries or products or companies that look like you and benchmark. Look in industries you would never look in. So let me give you an example or a few examples of each of these. So we'll start with the first one. What would we never do? So years and years and years ago, I was working with a company that did Glade air fresheners. And they were trying to come up with new product ideas. So everybody was brainstorming all these different, you know, different fragrances and colors, et cetera. Um, it happens to be the same company that makes Windex. And so they were trying to think about different ways to do the same thing with Windex. And then ultimately we got to the other product that they make, which is Raid, right? Raid kills bugs. And so we had been brainstorming all these ideas. Nothing was really that exciting. And so finally I said, okay, let's do the opposite. What would you never do? And this gentleman in the back of the room who had a really baritone voice stood up and said, I would get fired if I made potpourri raid, right? Now potpourri is the best-selling scent of Glade Air Freshener. And I thought, well, that's funny. Why would you get fired if you made potpourri raid? And he's like, well, raid is tough, right? supposed to be tough and kill bugs. And if you see the commercials, it's always like, raid tough, and they slam it down on a table. And he's like, there's no way we would ever do potpourri. Well, because that was what he would never do, they got all the market researchers to start to look at it. Today, the best-selling version of Raid is called Outdoor Fresh, which is what happens when a marketing person gets a hold of the word potpourri, right? It's the exact same thing. So no one had ever questioned why tough couldn't smell good. I was also working with a company called Bay State Gas. So this was up in Massachusetts, and it was the companies that come around to your house and they read your gas meters, right? This was years ago. They probably wouldn't do that today. They would use satellite technology and, and probably not drive around your neighborhood. But interestingly enough, we were going through the exercise of taking the company into its assets. And we had breakout groups. So after we had broken down the company into its assets, each group got an asset. And it was like, okay, spend the next five minutes trying to figure out what you're going to do with this. Well, one group had the vehicles. This company owned thousands of cars that from nine to five would drive around your neighborhood and read gas meters. That was the asset. What are you going to do with it? So they were coming up with all these different ideas. And one of the guys said, we should rent them out for bachelor parties. And everybody laughed. So I have another rule, which is when you're brainstorming, if you throw an idea out and everybody laughs, we have to stop what we're doing, and that's the idea we focus on. Because when you laugh, it is your visceral reaction to something that is true that makes you uncomfortable. And so there's a nugget in there. There's something interesting. 
So we started talking about bachelor parties and quickly realized that it was not practical to rent out the company's vehicles for bachelor parties. But bachelor parties started getting us think about thinking about the evening, right? The cars drive around and read meters from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then they're parked in a parking lot all night. So we were like, okay, what could we do with them at night? And it turned out there's lots of things they could rent the vehicles out for, not necessarily bachelor parties, but if somebody hadn't thrown out bachelor parties and made us laugh, we wouldn't have thought about the nighttime, okay? So in the end, the interesting thing was that there was a bunch of hours that they were idle, that they could be utilized and generate a lot more revenue. But we just hadn't been thinking that way until somebody said bachelor parties. Here's another example of that won't work. So this is Atlanta, this is Midtown. And just to orient you, I think there's a little thing on here. Um, this is Peachtree, right? This right here is the big statue with all the naked guys holding up the globe, right? I don't, I don't actually know what it's called, but there's a, there's a statue right there. And this is the on-ramp to Buford Highway in 85, right? So this is um, West Peachtree, one way. And as the traffic comes up here, it either goes to Peachtree or it starts to accelerate. It's about 80 miles an hour by, get, by the time a car gets here because they're heading on the expressway. So I was working for a company called Dewberry Capital and we owned this piece of property, okay? Um, and we wanted to build like a hotel or an office building or something on it. The problem is the front door is on 80 mile an hour traffic. That would be like building an office that opened up to I-85. Probably not gonna work. What we really wanted was to be on this street. That's Peachtree. You get a lot of rent if your building's on Peachtree because that's the best address. The problem is we had this thing here, right? So I said, well, well, that's easy. We should just build a bridge. So I went down to GDOT, you know, Georgia Department of Transportation, and these are my people because they're all Georgia Tech alums. And so I said, well, we have this idea. We want to build a building here. You know, cars can come in and park, but we need a walkway so that pedestrians can safely get over here. And they said, well, that won't work. And I said, why? They said, well, you know, we'd have to figure out this land right here is owned by the federal highway system. So you can't just build a bridge on it. You'd have to figure out what the air rights cost, and you'd have to figure out access and get all these agreements. So I said, okay. So I left, and I came back the next week, and I had researched all these different buildings that went over the federal highway system. And they said, well, that's nice, but it still won't work. Well, why? Well, you know, we can't give private access on public property. So after I had come back like six times, it got to the point where the GDOT folks were like, oh my God, that crazy lady's back. And she won't take no for an answer. And, you know, you can't do it because of the air rights, so we figured out the air rights, and then you can't do it because of private access. And so I finally came back, and all this time I'm thinking, what other buildings go over the federal highway? So if you drive up 400, you go under the financial center, right? And I said that, and they said, oh, but, you know, those buildings were there first. Okay, well, that won't work. Um, in Boston, near Harvard, when you get on the Mass Pike, you go under a grocery store called the Star Market. They didn't like that one either. So finally, I was like, you know, if you drive up Cobb Parkway, which is technically a federal highway because it's 41, um, there's Cumberland Mall, and there's the Galleria, and there's a walkway over it. And they said, well, that's different because that's a public walkway, right? So that's different than a private access. It's like, oh, 
So no lie, I, I got up, I left the room, I shut the door, I opened the door, and I said, I want to build a public walkway from my building over to that piece of property. And they said, you know what, that's a great idea. It took several meetings of no, it won't work, it won't work. But the interesting thing is, if in the very first meeting, I had just said to them, how do we make this work, they didn't know either. So it's not like they knew the answer and they were waiting for me to figure it out. They didn't know either. And so it took question after question and peeling back the onion before they were like, oh, that will work. So when someone tells you that won't work, don't just take it as a fact. Because they didn't know how to solve it any better than I did. And I didn't know either. But I was willing to keep asking really stupid questions. And to the point where they probably wanted to escort me out of GDOT. Um, but we did. What's the difference between a public walkway and a private walkway? Like where the security desk is. That's silly. So we ended up getting that approved. And um, it hadn't been built yet because then the economy went down and I don't work at Duber anymore. But um, so another example, this is also a map of Atlanta. Um, everybody kind of knows where, oh, I just did the, everybody kind of knows you got sort of 285. This yellow line with the blue dots is MARTA. And we owned that, you know, same property that I just was pointing out. Um, we had an office building that was kind of right here. And it's the Invesco building that you know today, right? If you're driving up Peachtree, it's now the Invesco building. That didn't exist at the time. But we owned that property. And so I was standing outside one day and I said to the owner, you're such a proponent of urban development, and yet your office building looks very suburban because it sits up on this little grassy knoll, and there's no retail in it. And he said, well, that's because we can't build out on the grass because MARTA goes underneath us. And I was like, well, that's interesting because there's not a MARTA station anywhere near here, and yet you're telling me the train is going under our feet. And he said, yes, right? So we're standing here. There is no station, right? That's Lindbergh, and this is Art Center. So there's this huge gap. And so, again, where else are my people? They're at GDOT and they're at MARTA, also Georgia Tech engineers. So I went down and met with the chief engineer and I said, I think we should build a MARTA station right here because the train's already there. And he said, well, I don't really have time to look at it. And I said, well, give me your drawings. I'd be happy to look at it for you. And I think he said something about me not being able to understand his drawings, at which point I explained to him that I have an AE degree from tech and I could make his drawings fly if I wanted to. Yeah. I'm not sure you'll understand my drawings. Um, so I ended up with the MARTA drawings on my dining room table. And what I realized is not only is there a gap there, but there's a gap here, there's a gap here, there's a gap here. There's all sorts of gaps in the MARTA system. And if you think about it, why not go back and put stations when the rail is already there? Now, when they built MARTA, people didn't live there. But now there's a lot of people there. And all you hear about is MARTA complaining how expensive it is to build another mile of rail. You don't need to build another mile of rail. Put more stations in where there's already people. And so we ended up, Ryan Gravel, who's also a Georgia Tech alum who did the Beltline, and I did a study and we identified like 13 stations that they could pop in because the train already goes by. It just needs to stop. <laughs> and so that is actually a project that they're working on right now. Again, I have no background in transportation other than looking at a map and saying, well, why can't you put a station there? 
All right, so the third thing I told you was creative reconstruction, right? And I told you you can take any product, any industry, and trace it through its opposites. So here's our helix again. Remember I told you it's a spiral. If you were to think about um, food, grocery, consumer packaged goods, when my parents were little, food came to the house, right? Charles Chips would drop off a canister of chips. Diapers were delivered separately. Milk came from the milkman, and it all got left out front. This industry became more and more competitive, and so somebody decided to do the opposite. The opposite of bringing it to your house is to put it in one place, and you go to it. What did that look like? Grocery stores, right? So now we have grocery stores, bricks and mortar. That industry became more and more competitive, started to become commoditized. Somebody decided to, again, do the opposite, but it wasn't, remember, it's not a pendulum. We're not going to go back to home delivery. What were we going to do? So we're, instead of putting it in one place, we're going to get it closer to your house. Gene, this is like the whole history of grocery for you. Not yet. Convenience, Convenience stores, right? So now there's a 7-Eleven on every corner and you can go get it easily instead of driving to the grocery store. This became more and more competitive, so we decided to do the opposite again. We're gonna go put it back all in one place. What did it look like? Walmart, Sam's Club, right? Now you have to own an SUV just to shop because you gotta buy in bulk. This became more competitive. We decided to go back to the opposite, right? What did that look like? So we had things like Streamline. I mean, now it's evolved again. But it's interesting, right? You can take any industry and trace its history through opposites. Think about the computer. For years, it was about bigger, faster, more memory. Bigger, faster, more memory, smaller. And the personal computer was created. So if you have a product, if you have something that you're interested in, study the direction it's going in, break it down into its parts, and say, what if I took that one to the opposite? Instead of bigger, what if I went smaller? Who would use that? Instead of distributed, what if I aggregated it? Who would use that? And then each time it evolves, right? So Streamline didn't look like Charles Chips because technology had come along. And so it's still home delivery, but it's done differently now than the milkman bringing milk to your house. So, Again, any industry you're in, whether it's healthcare, travel, tourism, et cetera, think about the evolution and take it to the opposite. And that's where the next innovation will be. You can also do this with a product. So we'll do a product that everyone knows, soda, all right? If you were to take soda and break it down into all of its parts, right? There's coloring, there's sugar, there's water, there's preservatives, there's packaging, there's delivery. So what if you were to take each of these, take the, take the trucks? What if, what if there was no trucks? How would, you, how would you get soda to people? A pipeline, right? Why not? I mean, this is, and I created this slide long before SodaStream existed. But think about it. You've got a refrigerator that you can walk up and push for ice cubes and push for water. Why not push for, why not have in the back of your house what restaurants have and mix your own? Coke would love that, right? Pipe it right on into your house. That would be awesome. Um, what if you took cans away? Same thing, right? So we're just going to pick some of these. Um, preservatives. What if we took the preservatives away? What would you have? Would it last very long? No, it wouldn't last. It would, it would go bad in two days, 
Who would buy that? Would anybody buy that if it went bad in two days? Who? Health conscious people, right? So you guys buy like Oddwalla and all these fresh juices. You pay a lot. You pay a premium and they go bad in a few hours, right? So there's a whole market for the health conscious side. What if we did the opposite and we took the preservatives and we doubled them? Who would buy that? It would last forever. Yep, at preppers. Preppers would use it. Yep, who else? Who else would use something with a lot of preservatives? Camping, like outdoor enthusiasts, right? Who else? The Army, military. Anything else? Trying to save a dollar. I mean, there's, you know, you go to Sam's Club, that stuff must last forever unless you have a really big family. Um, you could also think about, like, um, third world countries, disaster relief, right? So, interestingly enough, this is a brainstorm that I was doing with a soda company. And they had just come out with a clear soda that was a huge failure. And so we were all sitting down, okay, we got to counter this failure. What can we come up with? So now think about all of a sudden we've gone from just coming up with a new soda flavor to thinking about preppers or disaster relief or the military or... So all of a sudden your brain is going in directions that you wouldn't have thought of just sitting here, right? All right, so what about water? We take the water away. What do we have? <clears throat> What's that? Syrup. What will we do with that? Sell it to what? Mix it yourself, right? So SodaStream is kind of doing similar, right? Where you have the concentrate and you mix it. What else? Yeah. You. Candies, right? Chupa Chups, like some of these um, candy companies that use the syrup for flavoring, et cetera. I mean, dude, you could put it on pancakes, right? <laughs> what else could you do with syrup? There's a lot of things you could do. A whole new revenue stream that doesn't even involve water. It'd be very efficient right? Because when you ship water, you've made it bulkier. Um, what if we doubled the water? Now what do we have? There's a whole category out there now. Like flavored waters, right? Hint, where it's a whole bunch of water and a little bitty tiny flavoring. Um, all right, what if we took the sugar away? Diet, right? Interestingly enough, when we were doing the sugar one, we got into this whole discussion about the different types of sugar, right? Sucrose, glucose, fructose. One of the outcomes of this brainstorm is called glucola, and it's the highest margin soda on the market, and it's for diabetics. So if you change the sugar, then you can sell it to people that have different needs. What if you doubled the sugar? Energy, right? Like every college kid on this campus is drinking like boatloads of sugar, right? Double the sugar. Um, all right, so we got to color. Now remember, we were sitting, we were meeting because color had been an issue. So when we said take away the color, they were like, oh my gosh, don't do that. We already tried that. That was awful. All right, let's do the opposite. What if we doubled the color? What would you have? I mean, now you can change the color. You can get purple ketchup if you want, but... It'd be really dark. What do you like that's really dark? 
I didn't hear it. Chocolate. Chocolate? I'm soulmates. Yes, chocolate. What else do you like that's really dark? Coffee. Coffee, beer, right? Really dark. What's really dark coffee? Espresso. Who makes really good espresso? Baristas. Starbucks. The outcome of this brainstorm was a joint venture between Pepsi and Starbucks, and you know it as Frappuccino. So that was, that was the outcome of the, whole, of the whole brainstorm. But again, a soda company wouldn't have been thinking about coffee, and a soda company wouldn't have been thinking about disaster relief or diabetics or what have you if we hadn't taken each of those and taken our brain to one extreme and then the other extreme. So you can do that with any product you're working on. Okay, the last one of those four, remember I said is my anti-consulting, anti-benchmarking and, and best practices, and it's where would you never look? So how many people here know Hands on Atlanta? You know Hands on Atlanta? So I was working with Hands on Atlanta, and the market was down, they're a nonprofit, and they were really struggling to raise money. And so I said, what can we do that's different? And they started out by saying, we've benchmarked ourselves against all the other nonprofits. And I said, well, that's interesting. Like, what do you really do? And they said, well, we're a nonprofit. I was like, well, no, that's a structure. That's interesting. But so all you're doing is looking at other nonprofits. What do you really do? At the end of the day, Hands on Atlanta has a network of volunteers, people with time, and they have a bunch of people with needs, and they match them up, right? You guys decide you want to do a hands-on Atlanta day, they will happily send you to a playground to clean it up, right? Needs, resources, match. Who else does that? Uber? Absolutely Uber does that, right? I need to go somewhere. You have a car. Match me together and you can solve my problem. Who else does that? Headhunters, right? Staffing companies. College recruiters, you're looking for a job, I have a job, let me match you together. Who else? Airbnb. Airbnb. Anybody else? Yeah. eBay. So you guys have some mixer next weekend. Online dating services do this, right? So here's the interesting thing. Hands on Atlanta had been comparing themselves to other nonprofits. Talk about a yawner. I mean, you're not going to get anything really innovative out of that. But now instead, what if you were to say, okay, we match needs and resources. Who does that Uber? What are they how do they do it really well? Then take that and apply it back to Hands on Atlanta. So imagine if Hands on Atlanta had an app like Uber, and if you had some extra time on your hands, they could tell you where to show up with your friends and clean a playground. It doesn't have to be hands on Atlanta day, right? It could be any time. Same thing, we looked at like online dating services. Oh, well match.com was really good. Really, what makes them so good? Well, they do X, Y, and Z. Well, then you should do X, Y, and Z in the nonprofit space. So when you're trying to come up with an idea and your great ideas in healthcare, don't look at other healthcare companies. Look at aerospace companies, look at food companies, look at travel companies. Figure out why they are the best and then take that attribute and bring it back to your world. That's innovation. So instead of looking at people like you, look at people that are absolutely nothing like you. 
Instead of looking at companies in your industry, look at companies that are nowhere near your industry. That's where the best ideas are because nobody's ever applied it back. And that's easy to do and it's actually kind of fun, right? So imagine if the Hands on Atlanta board were here today and they heard you guys talk about Uber, they might be like, oh my gosh, why don't we do that? Why do we have to have a day that we plan all year to send, it, to send volunteers out? Why can't it be on demand? Another example, which I know is um, something that Georgia Tech does a lot of work on, is biomimicry. It's a perfect example of looking at something totally unrelated and applying it back. So there's a building in South Africa that has absolutely no heating and air in it. It's an office building, has no heating and air. And yet it's in a, it's in a geographical area where the temperature swings are huge. The reason it's like that is the architect had studied termite hills, right? So these things. And it's interesting because the termites survive in this environment because all these little holes are channels that are taking the air from outside and running it all through these channels, right? So imagine in the middle of the day when it's hot out, the warm air comes in, it runs down into the ground where it's not warm, where it's cold, and it keeps the air at a constant temperature at all times. They did the exact same thing in this building. They created all these channels where the air comes in and the air gets rotated through the walls from hot areas to cold areas so that the temperature never changes even though the outdoor temperature changes a lot. Fascinating, right? There's also um, some research being done. Did you know that peacock's feathers are actually not colored? It's the way they reflect light that gives you all that color. So they've started looking at ways to do paint that is non-toxic, that uses the reflectiveness of peacock feathers so that you and I one day might drive cars that are all painted exactly the same, but mine might look blue and yours might look red. Very cool. So again, I challenge you, don't look at things like you, do the opposite. Look at things that have nothing to do with what you're trying to do. Peacocks have nothing to do with car paint, and termite hills seemingly had nothing to do with buildings. And what can you learn from it and then apply elsewhere? I have discovered that all innovation comes from the demand side of a problem. That's why the incumbent never comes up with it. There is no reason that any taxi company in this country could not have come up with Uber. There is no reason that the greatest video technology companies shouldn't have come up with, um, what's the cameras that you wear on your head? GoPro, right? GoPro was designed by a surfer, not a video person, because they had a need. So the idea always comes from the demand side of the problem, and it's because they have the opposite view. The provider doesn't think anything's wrong, right? Video, people thought video was great. Why would you need something different? So always comes from the demand side of a problem. So I'm gonna show you an example of why opposites work. So um, it's getting to the point where you guys are so young now that you didn't grow up with Seinfeld like I did, but if Seinfeld says that opposites work, then it must work. So here, let's see. Speaking of having it all. Can you guys hear that? Where were you? Turned up on the line. I went to the beach. Oh, the beach! <laughs> it's not working, Jerry. It's just not working. What is it that isn't working? Why don't it all turn out like this for me? 
I had so much promise. <laughs> I was personable. I was bright. Oh, maybe not academically speaking, but I was perceptive. I always know when someone's uncomfortable at a party. Can I come over there? It all became very clear to me sitting out there today that every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's often wrong. <laughs> Everyone. Tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee. Yeah. No, 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 wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked out for me with tuna on toast. <laughs> I want the complete opposite of tuna on toast. Chicken salad on rye. <laughs> Untoasted with a side of potato salad and a cup of tea. <laughs> well, there's no telling what can happen from this. You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current, and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. Uh, George, you know, that woman just looked at you. So what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents don't approach strange women. Well, here's your chance to try the opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to them. Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Yes. I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite and I will do something. Excuse me, uh, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. <laughs> oh, yes, I was. You just ordered the same exact lunch as me. <laughs> my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. Victoria, hi. <laughs> <laughs> So now I'm just going to share some examples of where I've used opposites from the time I was here at Tech. Um, so I came to Tech, I think I mentioned I was an aerospace engineering student. Um, I was on the track, track and field team. And I pretty much knew what I was going to do when I left Tech. And I'm not sure how I came up with what I was going to do, but I think it's because adults asked me and I answered, and they were all impressed by it. So I kept saying it. And then at some point, I sort of started to believe it. So when people would come up to me, I'd say, well, you know, I'm going to be the first female professor in aerospace engineering, so I'm going to go do my PhD. And everybody said, wow. And then at some point, I was over at the aerospace, I mean, I was over at the athletic association, and my advisor said, there's this new program called the Eagle Japan program, and they're going to select 20 engineering students from around the country, from Tech, MIT, Caltech, et cetera, and you're going to go study Japanese and live in Japan for a while. And I was like, why in the world is she telling me this? Have you not heard the Laura Hodson plan? Because <laughs> it does not involve that. And she said, you should apply for it. And I was like, oh, no, no. I already have my plan laid out. 
And she looked at me and said, when will you ever have the chance to do something you would never do? This was before I talked about opposites all the time, but I was like, and I rarely don't have an answer, but I didn't have an answer. And so I applied for the program and was selected. So all of a sudden I found, I had never been outside the United States before. I grew up in a family where vacation was loading the station wagon and going to my grandparents' house. And so all of a sudden I found myself not only um, spending a week in Terre Haute, Indiana with a bunch of language professors learning how to speak Japanese so that I would survive, um, but I found myself on a plane headed to Kodayama, Japan um, and signing an agreement with the Defense Department that I would speak no English the whole time I was there. My charades got really good before I figured out how to actually communicate with people. But it turned out to be the greatest thing I had ever done because I was so outside my comfort zone and I got over to Japan and after spending several months there, I came back to tech and what I realized is I didn't really want to be a professor in aerospace engineering. I had just said that because everybody thought it was impressive. And so by doing something I would never do, when, when will you get the chance to do something you would never do was such a great question for me because it made me do the opposite of what I would have ever done. And it turned out to be truly a life-changing experience that changed everything I did after that. So I graduated from tech, um, ended up going to Anderson Consulting, which has become Accenture. And my very first project, I was working at Hardy's Restaurants. That's a change of pace. <laughs> I'm in a small town in North Carolina, and my job is to redesign the restaurant of the future. And there's a couple of the others, a woman from uh, Wake Forest, and we've got this project team. And so we're, you know, trying to figure out, can you bread chicken better? Like, do you flip the burgers differently? And we're walking around, and I literally live in this restaurant. I mean, I have a shirt. I got a name tag. People are walking up ordering food, and I'm behind the counter, and I'm doing all these time and motion studies, trying to figure out how to make this restaurant more efficient. And so finally, one day, we made the comment that we were sort of constrained by the way the restaurant was laid out, right? There's a counter there, and then you got the drive through around the corner. And so somebody said, well, why don't we move it all? Why do things have to be fixed? So we ended up putting the counter on wheels, and it would lock down, but at certain times a day when there wasn't as much demand, so you didn't have as big a staff, you could actually pull the counter back and you could run the drive-through and the counter together. So we ended up in this warehouse, like using cardboard to mock up the restaurant, and it became really cool, right? But until we figured out how to do the opposite of what had, we, we took what was fixed and made it move, and the stuff that moved, we made it fixed. Like we flopped it all. And that's what kind of opened up all these ideas of how you could more efficiently run the restaurant, how you could handle demand differently, how one person could both do the drive-through and get the sodas. And part of it was by moving the stuff that had been bolted into the floor up until then. What I also realized, though, is that I was not a good match for consulting. Because most consultants would come and do a project and it would be really fascinating and then they were dying to get to the next project. My problem is I would finish a project, they would put me on another one, and I was always like, um, but, but I want to go back there. Like, I don't know if it worked yet. And so that's when I realized that while I loved the problem-solving challenge of consulting, I really liked seeing stuff implemented. I really wanted to be part of a team that could build high-performing teams and, and, and be with people long-term as opposed to coming in a little at a time. So again, it was 
figuring out that I was a little bit the opposite of everybody around me kind of gave me an idea that I should go try other things as well. So um, coming out of Georgia Tech, uh, I actually, I was a finalist for a Rhodes Scholarship and I was sort of on the whole mentality of going to grad school, and so I just applied to business school. I had no work experience, but I applied anyway. And in my mind, I was just gonna try, I was like, well, it'll just be practice. And so I got this letter in the mail saying, you're accepted, and I was like, oh crap, because I really wasn't planning to go. <laughs> it was just sort of practice. And I had already um, been selected to work with the 96 Olympics, so I really didn't want to leave Atlanta to go to business school, because the Olympics were coming. So I called um, the different schools and said, I'm going to put it off for a year. And it was interesting because during that year, everybody kept saying, well, where are you going to go? Because, you know, engineers do really well at Wharton because it's very analytical. So I thought, oh, well, then that's probably where I should go because I'm really analytical. And then one of my tech classmates said, why would you go somewhere that plays to your strength when you're already good at that? Why not go somewhere that plays to your weakness? Well, that's not what people who like to excel tend to do, right? We like to go where we're good. And, but it was a really interesting question. Of course, I was thinking I'd go somewhere that I was going to rock it. And they're saying, no, go somewhere where your weakness is going to be more important. And so I ended up going to Harvard instead of Wharton for exactly that reason. And you'll laugh because the first essay on the application to Harvard was, how will Harvard challenge you analytically? And my first sentence was, you won't. Not because I was bragging, but I mean, my God, I've been through, you know, five calculuses in advanced engineering math. I don't think that's what you're going to challenge me on. However, you're going to challenge me in all these other areas. And again, you know, as you come out of Georgia Tech and you think about the project teams you put together, or you think about the company you go work for, or you think about where you go to grad school, make sure that you don't do what most people do, which is just follow your strength. Because sometimes going somewhere that's going to play to your weakness ends up making you way more super powerful. So off I went to HBS. The second question on the um, application was to describe your dream team. If you could put together a team, what would it look like? And it's interesting because my answer was it would look nothing like me. Because I can't imagine having an entire project team of people like me. I already know I'm a pain in the butt. We don't need five more of me, that's for sure. So the whole thing was about diversity and how I thought the best teams were really diverse. And so I then ended up taking a class on that very topic. And research shows, of course, that you make better decisions when you're in a diverse environment than a homogenous environment. But interestingly enough, when you're around people like you, you make worse decisions, but you're more confident in them. It's kind of weird. When you're around people that are different than you, you make better decisions, but you're not as confident because it's harder. So think about it. When you're around all your friends that agree with everything you do, it's really easy to make decisions. And you have almost this overconfidence, which is bad because it's not a good decision to begin with. But you're uber confident about it because it was so easy to get there. So as I went through HBS, it sort of reinforced that idea that you should always put yourself in groups that do not have the same strengths as you, that do not think the way you do, that do not act the way you do. And it's really uncomfortable, but you come up with really great ideas that way. And so I've tried to do that throughout the rest of my, my work life as well.
Um, so here I am, second year in business school, and it's time to interview for jobs. And there's a few jobs that everybody wants. Like there's kind of the gold jobs, like working for the CEO of Bertelsmann, where you get to live in sort of New York and Germany and do all this great stuff, or working with the CEO of Disney. Um, and so there's certain jobs that everybody signs up for. Now, Disney was interviewing for a financial analyst, and I don't like finance, so I wasn't going to sign up for that. But I happened to be doing a field study with Disney, and so the project person from Disney said, Laura, I see you're not on the interview list, and I said, well, no, because I don't want that job. And he said, well, that looks kind of bad. Like, you're doing this project for Disney, but you're not interviewing. You should go interview. And I thought, okay, oh, well, okay. I mean, I'll go interview, but does this make any sense? And so I walked in the interview, and the interviewer said, his first question was, what, should, what would you like to do? And so I answered him. And it sounded nothing like a financial analyst. And you could see the confusion on his face. Because he was like, you know what we're interviewing for, right? We're interviewing for a financial analyst. And I said, well, yeah, but that's not what you asked me. You asked me what I wanted to do, so I told you. And he said, okay. So we talked a little bit longer. And then he said, you know, wait a minute. And he got up and he left. That is usually a bad indication, right? When the interviewer leaves in the middle of the interview, not a good thing. He came back in and he said, all right, I am leaving Boston tomorrow at noon. And if you can drop off at my hotel, at the office, at the lobby, a one-page description of your dream job, we'll see what we can do. I ended up with an offer to work for the CEO of Disney directly. Nobody had that offer. They weren't even interviewing for that. And my friends were like, oh my God, how in the world, like why did you not answer the question the way they expected? And I said, well, sometimes we get so caught up in winning the award, I could have answered it exactly the way I knew he wanted me to. And I could have gotten the job of financial analyst, no question. And in six months, I would have been miserable. And they would have been miserable because I don't want to be a financial analyst. And so I really wasn't taking that big of a risk, right? I mean, I, I, I kind of went out on a limb, but the worst thing that could have happened is he could have said, oh, I'm sorry, we're just interviewing for a financial analyst. We don't have anything. Would I have lost anything? No, because I didn't want to win what they were giving out. So by telling him what I wanted, he actually did something I didn't expect, which was go create it for me. And that's what I described, is I wanted to work directly for a CEO where I could do special projects and understand how to run a company. So I would tell you, as you think about interviews, I actually think interviewing's backwards. Because companies come in and they draw this little box and you all compete to fill them. And that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So at our company, we do the opposite. We find really cool, smart people and then we figure out the job. Because I'd rather build a job around you than have you force fit yourself into a box. So if you know what you want to do, have the guts to tell people what that is because sometimes they'll just surprise you and figure and, and make it for you. Um, you can also apply opposites to your personal life. So my second year in business school, there was a group of kids who decided to charter sailboats and sail from St. Lucia to Grenada. Now that sounds like an awesome trip except for the fact that I get motion sick. Like, you put me in a cab in New York, and it is scary. And so my husband was like, oh, we should do this. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. You know, let's put Laura on a boat <laughs> and just go around. And so, again, I was like, you know what? What would you never do? 
So I invested in a lot of medicine, right? I had the wristbands, I had the Dramamine, and we signed up for this trip, showed up. I didn't get sick once. It was the greatest vacation I've ever had in my life. So again, what would you never do? So when you think about your personal life, trips, what you want to do with your family, do things you would absolutely never do. Nobody would have ever put me on a sailboat. And then I was also meeting with a company called Bertelsmann, which, again, I had the option. I could have been in Germany and New York. Um, if I worked for Disney, I would have been in Los Angeles. Remember, I got my dream job from Disney. But there was an issue. My husband worked for Coke, and Coke wanted us to come back to Atlanta. So after all that work of getting my dream job offer, I actually turned it down. And I remember calling the CEO of Disney, and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm going to turn this down. And you know what he said to me on the phone? He said, you will be successful wherever you go and whatever you do as long as you put your family first. And if you took this job and dragged your husband out to L.A. because you wanted this perfect job and he left his career at Coke, it would be a disaster. And he was right. So we came to Atlanta. And we've both been very successful and happy, and we've been in Atlanta ever since. So sometimes it feels like that perfect thing that if you give it up, your whole life is going to go off course. It's not true as long as you put your priorities straight. So I came to Atlanta. IXL was a startup at the time. The internet had just started. I know that's hard for you guys to fathom, but we, people were actually building websites. It was like, oh, what are we going to do with that? Um, there was a company called IXL, and they were just getting started with building, you know, sort of brochureware websites, et cetera. So I came in, I started the consumer products practice. The company was growing like crazy. We were the dot com golden child. Um, and one of my clients came to me and tried to recruit me to leave IXL to go help them start a company. And I thought about it long and hard, and I decided to leave. And I remember going to the CEO, and he's like, what in the world are you thinking? Like, you're the most senior person that would leave. Our stock's at 50. It's going to be at 100 in a couple months. You're crazy. And what I said to him was, when we started the company, every Friday at our Lunch and Learn, we celebrated awesome delivery. And I remember that. Every Friday at lunch, a project group would get up and talk about its really happy client that we had. But we had been growing so fast that at our Friday lunches, we had shifted and we were celebrating sales, like winning a project. And I remember we had just won a project with Home Depot, and the CEO was like, be in my office tomorrow, we're going to be on Bloomberg. And I was like, what are we going to talk about? We've just won the right to play. We haven't done anything yet. And what I said to him is the reason I'm leaving is we're celebrating the wrong thing. We used to celebrate excellent delivery, and now we're celebrating closing a deal. You are way over your skis. And so I did end up leaving. I'll show you what I did next, because it's my next slide. Um, and not too long after, everything came crumbling down. So again, everyone else was gung-ho forward, but be careful that you don't start to believe your own BS, because that is the easiest way to get into trouble. So always question even yourself. Um, so where I went from there, my client that had gotten me to, to leave was actually um, Shaquille O'Neal. And he had teamed up with three of Nike's first employees. And they decided to make custom footwear, right? So the idea was that they would do what Dell does. 
and they would manufacture pieces. So if you think about this shoe, there's, a, oh, there's stuff in it. Um, there's the outsole, right? There's the midsole, there's the upper, there's the tongue, there's, and so we had all these components that we warehoused in Macau, and you could go on and you could say, I want a certain outsole because I play outdoors instead of indoors. I want a certain midsole because I'm a guard versus a center. Um, I want an upper. I actually made some of the GT logo on it. And so we created this, this amazing product that was all about customization, and it's huge, right? So uh, this is a total side story. Um, I was actually speaking at an event in Vegas, and I was running through security, and I stuck it under my arm, because it, I mean, if, you, if I pack this in my suitcase, I have no, I have no clothes. Um, it takes up the whole suitcase. And so I threw this under my arm, and I'm running through security, and this lady goes, that is the coolest purse. <laughs> it's not a purse, it would probably hold more than my purse. Um, but imagine what his suitcase looks like. Um, so we had come up with this great customization model, and the idea was you would go online and you would design a custom shoe and we would ship it to you. The problem was we couldn't get it to you very quickly because of customs. And so UPS came back to us and said, no, like you can't ship one at a time. We gotta clear every pair of shoes through customs. So we had tried to come up with all these different ways and we went back to opposites, right? So if we can't ship each one, what if we package them all together? Well, that kind of defeats the whole point of customization. Right? If I'm supposed to ship you a pair and you a pair, I can't ship them all together. Or can I? And so we worked with UPS and came up with this very unique model where the shoes would be made custom in Macau. At the end of the day, as each pair was boxed, it would be barcoded with your address. But we wouldn't ship it yet. Instead, we would put them all on a pallet and we would shrink wrap the whole pallet and we could pre-clear it through customs. It was being shipped to us in Los Angeles, but the minute that thing hit the ground in Los Angeles, we just had to tear open the shrink wrap, and everything was already barcoded to your house. So as soon as we tore open the shrink wrap, you would just scan, 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 and off it would go to your house. That is now something very common that UPS offers importers, but nobody had ever done that before. So we figured out a way to do custom, but do collective shipping um, in a way that was still fast and cheap. Um, my next adventure had nothing to do with a company and had everything to do with the fact that I became a mom. So when I was commuting to Los Angeles, my mother-in-law was picketing for grandchildren and she was not subtle at all. You know, she's like, if you're traveling all over the place, how am I ever going to have grandkids? Um, so I came back to Atlanta. A few years later, my son was born. He's 14 now. And I have learned more from watching him and applying opposites to my family. So when he was in first grade, he was doing Taekwondo. Um, I knew nothing about Taekwondo, but his instructor invited him to come to a competition. I didn't know what a competition looked like. So we show up at this massive school, and you're looking down, sort of like being in the basketball arena at Georgia Tech, and there's all these mats, and I look at my husband, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to have to go down there and perform this routine, and I don't think he knows it. And my husband's like, have you ever seen him practice? And I was like, no. I mean, he goes to class after school, but I don't think. And so, you know, everybody's like, well, should we pull him? And I was like, no. But this is going to be an epic fail. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And so sure enough, he goes out there, and he, gets, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, he realizes immediately that he doesn't do this routine. And so he comes off the mat. His shoulders are hanging. You know, the, he's crying. Every other kid on his team got a medal. He did not. 
And we get in the car that afternoon, and he's still, you know, hyperventilating. And he's like, you know, I didn't win a medal. And I was like, no, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> no medals here. And I said, you know, here's the thing. Like, if a medal's important to you, then you got to do this thing called practice. <laughs> if it's not, then just go have fun and don't worry about winning a medal. Like, I don't need a medal. And, but that's your choice, right? If you want a medal, you practice. If you don't want a medal, go have fun. So we get home that night. It's a two-day thing, so we got more fun the next day. Um, and I'm making dinner, and I see him in his playroom, and he's practicing. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And so the next day we go back, and he ekes out a bronze medal. But I could have lectured that kid for years on the importance of practice, and it would have been in one ear and out the other. He had to fail. He had to bomb because it was the only way that he would learn how to do it the right way in a way that meant something to him. And it's interesting because failure is awesome. When I started my water company, which was the next thing I did, um, Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of Spanx, she told me, her and her dad and I were having dinner, and she was telling me this story. So Sarah's the youngest self-made female billionaire, right, on the cover of Forbes. And she said when she first came up with the idea for Spanx, everybody told her it was stupid. But she didn't care. Because when she was growing up, every Friday at the dinner table, her father would ask her and her brother, what did you fail at this week? And if they didn't have an answer, they got punished. I was like, seriously? You punished your kids because they didn't fail that week? And he said, absolutely. Because if you went a whole week and you didn't fail at something, shame on you. You stayed comfortably in the center of your little bubble, and you couldn't possibly have tried something new. It is not possible to try something new and not fail. And so he used to punish them if they didn't fail every week. So she would say today that the reason she had the guts to start that company in her apartment, even though everybody told her it was a dumb idea, is because failure in her house wasn't just acceptable. Failure wasn't okay. Failure was celebrated. It was awesome. So I would challenge you, every day try to fail at something. Try. Because if you have little tiny failures, they don't hurt that bad. But if you wait and you try to prevent failure, it will come and it'll be epic. So try to fail. Try every day to fail. And then once you fail, don't repeat it, right? But if you do that to yourself, then failure's not that big a deal. But fail fast and fail forward. So I started Nourish, um, I had my child, and what I realized is that kids spill everywhere. And whoever designed the juice box is a horrible person. Because they designed this thing that you grab and it shoots right in your face, right? Ever watch a child grab a juice box? It shoots juice right in your face. And so I didn't want my child drinking sugary drinks, I didn't want him drinking all these juice boxes, and every time we'd go somewhere and I brought a bottled water, that was also a bath in the back of my car. Because little hands cannot get the fine motor skills to put a cap on. So I came up with this idea for a spill-proof bottled water. And the bottle itself is oval in cross-section because little hands can't hold circles. They're too bulbous. But they can hold ovals. So we designed and patented this bottle. Little hands can hold it. 
Down the side are the volume markings, so you can measure exactly eight ounces of water with your formula. And then for the babies, it had a baby bottle top on it. So if you were traveling, you could just add the formula, shake, serve, and recycle, instead of trying to go into a nasty bathroom and try to clean a dirty baby bottle, which is disgusting. Um, and then for toddlers, the green one is totally spill-proof. Like you can throw it at your friend, you can step on it, you can do whatever. The only way for water to come out of that thing is if it's in your mouth and you bite on it. So it was designed after the camelbacks that I used when I was doing triathlons. And so as we started to design this, the first thing we did is we said, what can we do that's opposite? So imagine this. I have to put this product in a grocery store alongside other beverages. Really noisy. And I don't have the money that Coke has to get you to look at it. So we literally walked up and down the aisles of the grocery store, and what we realized is in the baby section, which is where this would be, everything for infants is very sterile. It's very medicinal. It's things like Similac, right? That is not a brand that makes you want to hug it, right? It sounds like it should be in a hospital. But then when you get to toddlers, everything is very cutesy. Like there's cartoon characters gone horribly wrong on every package. And everything was primary colors. So we said, okay, we're gonna do the exact opposite. We're gonna make a package that's clear. We're gonna use no primary colors whatsoever. We're gonna actually make it kind of artistic. So all of our um, packaging had black and white photography of kids on it. So when you walk down the aisle, it just looked different. You didn't know what it was, but it made you stop. We didn't spend any more money than we would have if we had done benchmarking and looked at what everybody else did. Instead, we just said, we're gonna do the complete opposite. Opposite color, opposite material, opposite packaging, and then I don't have to go spend the marketing dollars to yell at you because it's just gonna stand out. So Nourish was growing, and we started selling into Whole Foods, Kroger, we sold at the airports, and this crazy thing happened. We would ship the product, and we would not get paid. And I thought that's how commerce worked. I thought, I give you product, you give me money. That's kind of the way it's supposed to work. But the problem was, as we grew and we started selling into these big companies, they take forever to pay. And I happened to be complaining about that to one of my suppliers. I was like, oh my gosh, these people are taking three months to pay. And he said, well, Laura, it's just a working capital issue. Everybody has that. You do not tell an engineer that everybody has a problem. Because I was like, all right, that's what we're going to focus on. Everybody's got this problem. It must need to be solved by somebody. And so I went and looked at everything that was out there. You could borrow money from a bank. You could take out a line of credit. You could do a loan. You could do factoring. You could do receivables finance. You could use credit cards. And I took all of it and I laid it out on the table, just like my MARTA drawings. And I went through and marked off everything that didn't work. And then I was like, well, what am I left with? What works? Let's put it back together. And so we ended up creating the company I have now, which is called Now Account, and we've essentially created a way. So if you walk into a store, you typically pay with a credit card, right? And when you hand Starbucks your card, they get paid that day. When and if you pay your visa bill is not their problem. So the fact that you're not paying doesn't hurt them. But in the world I was in, which is B2B, if you asked me, would you rather take a card or send an invoice? I would rather take a card because I need to get paid and pay my employees. But if you ask my customer, they were like, oh no, send me an invoice. I don't want to pay with a card because I don't want to have a deadline that carries interest. And so when we map this out, we're like, okay, well, let's just connect them. 
So we've created the first payment system in any business that sells to other businesses or governments when they ship their product or deliver their service, they send the invoice, they give it to us, they get paid immediately, it feels like a credit card, their customer gets the invoice and pays when they feel like it. But it's not a loan and it's not factoring, it's completely off balance sheet. So today, when I speak at conferences, which are usually finance conferences, now what did I tell you earlier I don't like? I don't even like finance. So when I sit on these panels with all these bankers, they look at me and they're like, you are not a banker. And I'm like, good, God, no. And a banker would never have come up with this because they're not on the demand side. I had the problem and they're on the supply side. And I did the opposite of what anyone else would have ever done. And if you were to, if you were to sit in a small business conference when I speak, it sounds like a Baptist revival. Everybody's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. Why wouldn't everybody have this? So it's a good thing that I'm not a banker, right? Don't ever let somebody tell you that because you don't have expertise that you don't add value. The most value you can add is not having expertise. So at the end of the day, I'm just going to close um, here in the next few minutes with my takeaways. So I've told you about the opposites and how to use them. I've told you how I used them throughout my life. But these are sort of things that I've learned that I wish someone had told me when I was in your shoes. Um, first and foremost, how many people here want to be successful? I would have raised my hand too. But if success is your goal, you are not thinking very big. Because success for most people is some combination of these things, right? Success is position, a title, power. Success could be happiness. Success could be money. It could be winning awards, but at the end of the day, the definition of success is the favorable or prosperous termination of an attempt or an endeavor. What about that definition do you think I don't like? Termination, right? It's finite. Success means you got the job, you won the award, you won the race, you won the game. What are you going to do tomorrow? You got to start all over again. And so I finally realized that the bigger goal in life is significance, because that is infinite. So don't focus on being successful. That's not that impressive. But if you can be significant, that's amazing, because that means you impacted somebody else who impacted somebody else. That never ends. And that changes how you think. So when I graduated from high school, I don't know if they still do this, um, and these are not my pictures, I'll tell you why. Um, but there's superlatives, right? Most spirited, most likely to succeed. Well, in my yearbook, I was voted most likely to succeed. And I hate that picture for two reasons. One, I graduated in 1988, and that was the big hair years. And my hair takes up the entire frame, which is why I don't use my picture. But the other reason I hate it is that it's me and a guy named David Bell who went to UVA, and we are both dressed up and we are leaning on a Porsche. It is the dumbest picture I've ever taken in my life. Because if I were to show you today a picture I'm really proud of, my car is not in it. Instead, I would probably show you pictures of when we launched Nourish and there was a disaster in Haiti, thousands of bottles of water were donated to Haiti by us and our clients. That's significance. Doesn't matter what car it went in. So redefine what you want to do in life. And don't focus on success. Focus on the impact that you can have. So success versus significance. Significance is about the impact. The second thing is what you know versus what you notice. 
Now, if you're at Georgia Tech, you know a whole lot of stuff. You've spent a lot of years knowing a lot of stuff. But the key to all innovation is not what you know. And that's really inconvenient, isn't it? Especially if you're like a PhD, because <laughs> you know a lot. What you notice is the key to all innovation. What you know is typically what holds you back, because that's that reality that you have to break. And most of us, as we get older, we know a lot and we stop noticing things. You probably walk the same way to class every day, and if I were to ask you what the person was wearing that you walked by, you don't remember, because you didn't notice. And yet, all innovation comes from noticing a need, noticing the impact, noticing the idea. I didn't know anything about finance, and I came up with this awesome solution. I didn't know anything about bottled water, and I came up with a solution. So the fact that you don't know something can be your superpower, not your weakness. I often also say, when you're at Georgia Tech, and there's all these great like business co venture contests, your greatest idea does not have to have anything to do with your major. You can be a bioengineering major and your greatest idea could be in civil. That is okay. You don't have to be the expert in what your greatest idea is. Your greatest idea should just come from your life. Something you notice should be better. And if it's not your expertise, awesome. Surround yourself with people who do have that expertise. But I have had ideas in industries I had no background in, and it is so fun. So I'm going to show you an example of the difference between knowing something and noticing something, and it's really easy. So on the next slide, I'm going to give you a series of words. I want you as a group out loud to read me the words, okay? It's very simple, all right? Ready? Go. Okay, so everybody always does it at that same cadence. Now I want you to read me the colors out loud. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? So the reason is your left brain reads words and your right brain reads color. The left brain is the analytical side. We developed that really well at Georgia Tech. It's stronger. So it's like if I went to the gym and I only lifted weights with this arm, this arm would get weaker. The same thing happens in your brain. Your analytical side is great. You can read the words, no problem. But the minute you try to read a color, the dominant side of your brain says, I know that word is green, so I have a really hard time noticing that it's written in yellow. It is hard to notice things when you know a lot. So force yourself to be in situations where you are not the smartest person in the room, where you don't know anything. That's where your best ideas come from. When you're on a plane, flip through the magazines. You'll come up with all sorts of ideas. So here's an example of what happens when you know a lot versus notice. These are the bad guys rushing the town. Whoa. The Panaman Freeway? Now, what loud asshole think of next? Has anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Hey, Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Uh, hey, I'm speeding up hell. We ain't ever going to get to Rock Ridge. Come on, move him through, move him through. God. So it's pretty funny, right? You're riding through a desert and you stop at the toll booth. 
But the reality is we do that every day. You do it every day. The minute you throw out an idea and your project partner says, oh, we've already tried that before, and you give up, you just went back and got a dime. Instead of saying, okay, well, how are we going to make it work? How do I go around it? How do I go under it? How do I go over it? The next thing I learned is that when you build a team, mindsets are more important than skill sets. So when I started Nourish, I had the dream team of resumes. I mean, you looked at our founding team and we had everything covered. We had a great lawyer, we had the finance person, we had the product de developer, we had the marketing person. What we didn't have was a common mindset around what was important in life, character, et cetera, and it was a disaster. On the other hand, with Now Account, I can teach you to do almost anything I need you to do, but I can't teach you how to think. I can't teach you how to approach challenges. I can't teach you how to stay positive. I can't teach you to be optimistic. So when you put your teams together, worry more about the mindsets and less about the skill sets. The skill sets you can always hire. That's easy. But the mindsets change everything. And so this is a poster that I keep at my desk. It's the attributes of people who made your 10th grade history book. Now, mind you, all those people aren't good. <laughs> you can make a history book and do some really bad things. But think about it. The first things are positive, right? Committed, determined, focused, passionate. But then all of a sudden, you start to see words like irrational and impatient. And they piss a lot of people off. And they're quirky. So when you get down here, these are not things your kindergarten teacher would have given you a gold star for. You would have been put in time out if you did those things. But I love that because these are the behaviors that it takes to be significant. You can use other behaviors for success. That's easy. But significance does take making some people upset and being a challenger and you know, challenging assumptions and being the contrarian. Um, so when I was with, at, with Shaq at Dunk, it was interesting. My husband came in town, and we were going to Shaq's house for dinner. And this is the year that he had won all three MVP trophies. So he was the MVP of the regular season, the All-Star Game, and the finals. This was with the Lakers. And so we go to Shaq's house, and it's a very interesting experience because he says, let me show you my game room. Now, when I hear the word game room, I expect to see pool tables and ping pong tables, but not in Shaq's house. The game room has like a life-size cheetah attacking an antelope. Um, it's a game room, right? And so there's all this really cool stuff. There's pictures of him and Michael Jordan. There's all these great things. There are no trophies anywhere. And I was like, dude, where are all the trophies? And he said, when I was growing up, my father had a rule that if you won an award, you could keep it in your room for two weeks. And then I had to put it in the basement. Because if I was so focused on celebrating what I did yesterday, I couldn't possibly be focused on what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I remember thinking, wow, my office has my diploma. That's the past. Pictures of things we've done in the past. Awards I've gotten in the past. If you don't have anything in front of you that represents what you want to do, you'll never get there. So I challenged myself, and I challenge you, go back to your dorm room or wherever it is you spend time and make sure that there are things in front of you all the time that represent your goal. It could be your project that you're working on for next week. 
It could be your dream home in 10 years. It could be your dream vacation. It doesn't matter whether it's short-term or long-term. If it's not in front of you every day, you will not get there. So go back and cover your room with the future, not the past. Focusing on answers versus questions. Every day, if you're sitting there doing a homework problem and you can't figure it out, what you're saying to yourself is, I need to come up with the answer. And yet the reality is the most valuable thing you can do is come up with the right question, not the answer. If you spend all your time focusing on questions, I mean on answers, you'll never get to the right question. And it goes back to what we said in terms of being that contrarian. So when I was a kid, I loved Legos, and they didn't even make pink ones yet. But I loved to build stuff, and Legos came in buckets, and it was just different sized rectangles. How do you think I knew what to do with them? How did I know? Huh? I used my imagination, right? Nobody told me. I just had a bunch of squares. That's what I had. I was going to decide whether I was going to make a camera or the world's largest tower or what have you. What frustrates me to no end with my child today is if you want to buy Legos, they look like this. And in this box comes the 1,248 pieces. You need to build that castle. And thank God there's an instructions manual. That's actually for the parent, not for the child. And the sad thing is they don't have to imagine anymore. They stop asking questions because they're just trying to get to that. So the first time I bought one of these, I threw the box away. I threw the um, instructions away. And we started building. And within seconds, my son was like, oh, we're doing it wrong. Well, how do you know? Well, it doesn't look like that. I don't know about you, but I didn't vote for Lego to be the world's expert on what a castle's supposed to look like. And yet we're training an entire generation of people to just make that. And it drives me crazy because we're not learning how to question things, how to do it differently. The next is to focus on what you can do versus what you can't not do. So most of you are very good at doing probably a lot of things. And as a young child, I'm sure that the people around you who love you very much said, oh, you're so good at that. You should do more of it. I don't care if it's throw a ball, solve a math problem. Somebody told you you're good at that. Do more of it. You may get pretty far in your career and realize that a lot of the things you're good at, you don't really like. I am awesome at spreadsheets. I don't like them. <laughs> so sometimes your personality and what you're good at don't always match. So I always challenge people to figure out not just what you can do, because I can do a lot of things, but what can I not go a day and not want to do? So, here's my exercise for you. How many people here keep to-do lists? I love a good to-do list. In fact, if I do something during the day that wasn't on there, I write it on there just to cross it off. It's like great satisfaction. So hopefully on Mondays, your to-do list is longer than Fridays. Otherwise, you accomplish nothing that week. Look at your to-do list every Friday. What's left on it? You don't like that. That's why it's there. So on Wednesday, when your friend that you were going to have lunch with canceled and you had a free hour of time, you spent it on something you liked. You didn't do the things that are still on there Friday. If you look at every Friday for four or five weeks, the same things are always there. You don't like them. You might be good at them, but you don't like them. 
So as you think about your career, the type of company you want to work for, make sure you know what you can't not do. Because that's what makes you happy. Not the things that you're just awesome at. Unless that happens to be one and the same, which would be great. Focusing on the what versus the so what. This is actually, if you remember nothing else from this hour and a half, besides the word opposites, remember the what versus the so what. Most of us are told, and I remember sitting at Georgia Tech and listening to the president of Delta Airlines say, you should do what you're passionate about. How many people have heard that? Do what you're passionate about. I don't know about you, but that used to frustrate the heck out of me because I didn't know what I was passionate about. Not that I wasn't passionate about anything. I was passionate about a lot of things. I can be passionate about a great many things. And I would sit there and be like, oh my gosh, how am I going to know what I'm passionate about? I was so frustrated that my roommate knew she wanted to be a doctor and she was off to Johns Hopkins and doing all this stuff. What I realized is you do not have to be passionate about what you do because the what doesn't matter. You do need to be passionate about the so what that you do, the impact that you have. That's what matters. So when I was at IXL, I remember my boss saying, how could you leave and go to Dunk? We make the coolest technology. I don't care. What does it do for people? Does it make their life better? That's what I care about. And here's the important thing. If your ego and your passion are in what you do, you do not listen. So here's an example. If I designed this, and I was showing it to you. Look at this awesome remote I designed. And you said, Laura, that's really good. But you know, you could improve it. What do you think I'm doing? Did you see how great my remote is? Without knowing it, I'm defending it because I'm passionate about this. And you've just challenged it. I'm not listening to you. However, if I don't care about this, but I care about the greatest presentation ever, and you tell me how to improve it, I am all ears. So if you came to our office at Now Account, there is nothing you couldn't change tomorrow that I would care about. Except every day our clients call and say, I hired five new people because of you. I created 10 new jobs because of you. I grew my business 10x because of you. That you cannot change. That I care about because I care about job creation and reducing disparity. Do I care about how you process an invoice? Not at all. So make sure that when you work on something, your passion is in your so what, not your what. The what can change tomorrow, and you shouldn't care, as long as the impact doesn't change. Look at your resume. So people always send me their resumes and say, what do you think? There is one thing that is a huge difference between a person coming out of college and a senior executive. Most resumes are a list of what's. So if you give me a resume that says, I am the president of ODK, congratulations, your butt kept a chair warm for a year. What did you do while you were there? What impact did you have? The fact that you did something is irrelevant unless you tell me the impact that you had. Now, if you look at like a CEO or a head of sales, their resume will say, I drove revenue, I increased revenue 300%. That's impact. It doesn't say I was a salesperson for four years. Nobody cares. So look at your resume and look at all the great things you've done here and make sure that you communicate to somebody the impact that your awesome work did. 
Otherwise, it just means that you had a position and you kept it warm. Focusing on what you excel at versus fail at. So we touched on this a little bit. We all like to do what we're good at. It makes us feel good. But failure is awesome, and you should try and fail every day. Think big, but act small. Everybody at Georgia Tech has big goals. We are all going to change the world. The challenge is that sometimes while you're shooting to change the world, you don't realize that the real change happens right next to you. And I had an interesting experience when I was at Harvard. Um, there was a woman who was interested in studying how women led change different than men. And so she was trying to find women CEOs leading through change. Now remember, this was in the early 90s. And she couldn't find a large enough sample size to do a study. But what she found is there were 18 women who were current or former heads of state. Not royalty. They had been elected the president or prime minister of their countries. So she decided to interview them. Took her two years, because Margaret Thatcher wouldn't talk to her until she'd interviewed the other 17. But she went around the country and interviewed all these amazing women from Sri Lanka, from uh, Turkey, from Ireland. And as she interviewed them all, she realized none of them had ever met. Shocking, right? There's the G8, there's the United Nations. But here were these women running countries that had never thought to come together. So she brought them to Boston. And as a student, I got to host some of these ladies. It was amazing. But the woman I hosted was a woman you may or may not have ever heard of. Her name is Vigdis Finbogadr. She is the longest sitting female president of any country in history. She was the president of Iceland for 20 years. And the story she told that to this day like makes me laugh is she said in Iceland, little boys often come up to her and ask, can a boy be president ever? I thought that was funny too. I mean, of course a boy can be president. Look on television, there's Barack Obama. You can see the president, right? But she said, ah, the power of the mirror is exponentially more powerful the closer it is to you. So to a little boy in Iceland, the president of the United States is not real. And what that made me realize is that when you're thinking about these big changes you're going to make, what you don't realize is the person you're impacting the most is sitting right next to you right now. And if you don't realize that, you miss a huge opportunity for your so what. These are my opposites that I always keep on my desk. Your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. That is a very inconvenient truth. But it is true. Your greatest strength is also your weakness. So figure out how to focus on your weaknesses and also make them your strengths. Your best ideas happen when you lack resources. So if I tell somebody we need to do X and they come back and say I don't have enough time or I don't have enough budget, my reaction is always awesome. See what you come up with. Because if you have unlimited time, unlimited budget, you don't have to be creative. That's easy. It's only when you're restricted that you come up with awesome ideas. And you know this if you've ever procrastinated. Right? If I give you an hour, you will come up with something awesome. If I give you five hours, no more awesome. <laughs> You'll take the full five hours and come up with the exact same thing or worse because you waste away four of it. Right? So constrain yourself. Those constraints are good. I know it causes stress, but it's good. That's when your best ideas happen. Um, the power of the mirror we just talked about, and we talked about that what you're good at may not be what you love. So at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing is to be real. 
because you can't depend on your eyes if your imagination is out of focus. And most of us go around trying to, you know, get the financial analyst job that our friends want when we don't even want it. Or be something that our parents told us we're supposed to be, and that's not what we like to do. So do the opposite of everybody else and be real. That's it. Any questions? Any questions? No? Yeah. Yep. Sure. Um, so for me, uh, have you ever done the opposite and then after a while I realized, oh, you messed up and now you were Oh, I mess up all the time. Um, okay, so when we started Nourish, it was funny, we had come up with that beautifully designed bottle that we were so adamant was going to be the opposite of everything, and um, when we started running them on the high-speed line, those great clear labels that showed through, they had too much memory, and our, and our um, bottle was convex in both axes, right, so it was, it was an oval. Um, and so when the high speed ran the labels on, they all wanted to go back to their old position. And so there were these air bubbles. They looked awful. And we had to ship like two days later. I mean, we had all these orders. We had to ship. And we're like, oh, my gosh. So, of course, I call the label manufacturer. And everybody's initial reaction is to figure out how it's not their fault, right? Well, he did this and he did that. And I was like, okay, it doesn't really matter what anybody did because that ain't going to help me get this to a customer. What we need to do is figure out how to solve it. So while they were figuring out a different material with a different adhesive that would work, I was like, guys, we got to ship. So we sat at my kitchen table with scissors, and we started cutting them off and applying them to the bottle. So I don't know if you remember the shape of the bottle. The label was like the whole bottle, but the print was only in the middle of it. And we did that because it was cheaper to make one die cut. But as we're applying these by hand and getting really tired, we started just cutting off the clear part. We're like, dude, the words are only in the middle. Let's just cut the rest of that off. And then you can stick it on really quickly. That was awesome, right? It was a huge failure. I mean, we had to call the client. It was going to be late getting there. Had we not had the failure, we would have kept printing these really big clear labels that cost twice what they needed to cost because it was all this extra plastic. But if it had worked the first time, we wouldn't have known that. So the failure actually became a positive, but it didn't seem like it at the time. At the time, I was fighting with all my suppliers over whose fault it was and who owed the money and this, that, and the other. So um, there's a lot of times when I do something, then I do the opposite. It doesn't work. You go back. But I think you just have to get used to the fact that the failure is fine. Like in some cases, the failure two weeks later ends up being a gift that I didn't know was a gift at the time. Yep. And from your stories, some of the ways that you kind of prove that you have like a, a right to be there and like a space for us to have respect was because of your degree. Like when you're talking about the Marta story, mm -hmm. are there any other ways that you kind of like harness the fact that you deserve for people to listen sure. to you, even though maybe you weren't the expert in that industry? So typically when you're thinking to yourself, I don't deserve to be heard, that's coming from you, not the room. Like, you're overlaying that negativism, not the room. And so most of us have our own negative speak. It's the worst negative voice in your head is yourself. But it's interesting. So when I went to Dewberry Capital, um, I had zero experience in real estate. Zero. And 
the the owner of the company was like, oh, you know, you should come and help me run my company. And I was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I know nothing about your industry. But I do know how to build a company. And he was like, well, I'll teach you real estate if you teach me how to build a company. And here's what I said to him. I don't want you to pay me what I normally make because I'm not bringing that expertise. I want you to pay me what an entry-level person would pay, but in six weeks, you're going to be begging to pay me more. Right? So I didn't feel guilty. I wouldn't be never paid. It's like, pay me whatever you want, but you will be begging to pay me more. And six weeks later, once I had asked all these questions and we come up with all these ideas, he's like, oh my gosh, you need to be the COO and blah, blah, blah. So first of all, expertise is not what earns you the right to have respect. What earns you the right to have respect is the fact that you're a good problem solver. And you don't need a lot of knowledge for that. Everyone here is a good problem solver. You should have respect for just asking good questions. Like, when I think about the people in the room when we're solving a problem, I would rather more good problem solvers that can ask really good questions, or in some cases really dumb questions, than I would love to have a room full of experts. Experts don't get outside of their own way, usually. So it's good to have one, but I think one of the biggest things we do to ourselves is we judge our right to have a voice. So the fact that you have less experience or you don't have the expertise of the other people in the room doesn't mean you're any less valuable. And it took me a while to realize that because I would sit in the room and be like, oh, I'm intimidated. Like all these people know a lot more than I do. And yet the reality is I had the best idea, even though I didn't know any of the stuff they knew. So don't judge yourself worse than other people judge you. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, when I first started my career, everybody told me that I needed to focus. They looked at what I was doing, they're like, oh, you are all over the place. <laughs> you need to focus and be an expert in an industry. And I worried about that for a while. Like, gosh, I'm not doing that. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then finally, I got far enough in my career that I had the confidence to say, you know what? That is really good advice for somebody else and not for me. Because what I realized is my superpower is the ability to see something in the sports industry and apply it to the healthcare industry. That's my superpower. Nobody else sees the connection. And I can see something in real estate and apply it to finance. If you take away the diversity of experiences, if you put me in a focused and I become an expert, you've just taken away my superpower. So don't let other people apply their decisions on you. For some people, focus is absolutely the right thing to do. For me, not. And you have to have the confidence to say, that's not a good advice for me. And if you know deep down that a variety of experiences gives you this gift, then don't let anybody take that away. But people will, and they're not doing it to be mean. They're using their own experience to judge you. Right? When I give you advice, I'm giving you advice through my filter. So I'm, I'm forcing you into my mindset. And don't let people do that. Because for years, people told me I should focus. And I was like, I have two superpowers. One of them is that, connecting seemingly unrelated things. And the other is the fact that I am female. That is my other superpower. People always come up to me and say, how did you deal with being one of only two women in aerospace engineering? And I'm like, you act like that's a challenge. It's not a challenge, it's my superpower, because I stand out. I love being different. That's what makes everybody remember.
So make sure you don't let people take your superpower and make you think it's a weakness, because it's not. Yeah? How did you go from being, like, I think a lot of us are engineers, and a lot of us, like, the job that we're going to get is, like, I will be an engineer at a company building something that I can hold to know. So how did you get from being, like, in that sort of position to being the one to tell people, like, how to do this? Um, so I think there's two things. One, engineering is probably the best background for any job you want to have. Because at the end of the day, engineering is problem solving. That's all it is. I mean, I don't use a single formula from aerospace engineering in my normal day. But when people say, you don't use your aerospace engineering, that's not true. I use it every day. I don't calculate lift and drag, but I do use it every day. Because the one thing I know is, I still remember when I was at Georgia Tech, I don't know why I did this, but I signed up for a graduate level rotor theory class. I had no business being in that class, and I quickly realized that. And I still remember sitting down for the final, and I started to sweat because I'd, it was one question, and I didn't even have a clue where to start. So my brain was like, well, I could just leave, and that was a very viable option. Or I could sit down, take a deep breath. I got, whatever, two hours and 50 minutes, is that what finals are? And I'd just start writing down what I know and pray to God that it comes together somewhere. And I did. I started writing stuff down. There is nothing you can throw at me in business that would freak me out more than that final. That's the greatest thing Georgia Tech gave me. It's not how to calculate lift and drag. It's that there is nothing you can throw at me that will freak me out. The grit that I had to get through here, it doesn't matter if your title is CEO or CFO or engineer. It doesn't matter if you're designing anything or not. You will use that every day in solving problems and looking at things differently. But how you get there is through a variety of experiences, right? So when you come out of school, what's on your resume is sort of sends you in one direction. But you're, the decision you make coming out of Georgia Tech is really almost irrelevant. So like when you sit there and stress over your first job, almost irrelevant. <laughs> Just do something, right? Because life is a figure, series of figuring out what you don't like. And if what you do you don't like, don't do it anymore. Go do something else. You're in the middle of the chessboard when you graduate from here. There are 50 million things you could do. Just pick one and see what you like and see what you don't like about it and then adjust. You don't even know what your jobs are going to be yet. You can't even imagine them. They don't even exist today. I've actually never had a job somebody had before me. Never. It's always been a job created. And you can't even envision what the jobs are going to look like 10 years from now. You don't know what they're going to look like. So I would say the way to get to being the person telling people, if that's what your goal is, to tell people what to do, um, you can have a child. That's one way to do it. Um, but really the way to do that is to just have a lot of experiences and learn a lot. So when you graduate from here, you're not done learning. Pick the job where you're going to learn the most. And then the next time, pick the next job that you're going to learn the most. So pick your jobs based on who you're working with, are you going to learn a lot? Not based on what you get paid or any of that stuff. That, that is totally irrelevant. I can't even tell you what my starting salary was on my first job. It doesn't matter. It matters that you go somewhere that you're going to learn a lot from the people that you work with. That's all that matters. And then you'll have a variety of experiences and you'll figure out what you want to run someday. You might start it yourself. Did you have a question? Uh-huh. Um, 
So it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm glad I did that were very contrarian. Um, you know, when I got to Georgia Tech, I actually wanted to study bioengineering. We didn't have that major at the time. And everybody said aerospace was the hardest. That's why I did it. I think that's a character flaw. Like, I have to do the hardest thing. Um, but I would say when I was here, I did a lot of things. I mean, in terms of activities and things like that. Um, and I did get outside my comfort zone, but I wish I had done, you know, it was towards the end of my time here that I was sort of tricked into going to Japan. <laughs> I wish I had done more of that sooner. Like, made myself go to clubs that I didn't even understand just to meet people. Or it's so easy to fall in with your friend group and your activity group with all the stuff you're, you like. Instead of just like, I, I wish I had gone to the student center one day and just showed up and done something that I had no interest in just to see if I would like it. Um, because while you're here, you have access to so many cool resources. And once you get out of here, you don't have that readily available. So like, join a club that you don't even understand. And who knows who you meet? That's what I wish I'd done. I think to be a good leader, you have to be a really good listener. Um, I think you have to have a lot of empathy. And I think you have to understand what leadership is. So if you look up leadership in the dictionary, there's actually about eight definitions. Four of them are about, you know, guiding a person to their desired goal or helping such and such accomplish something. And the other four are things like being in charge, giving instructions. Those are two very different definitions of leadership. Um, and I think a lot of people think, well, I just want to run something one day. I want to be the boss. For me, leadership is not even about me. Like, I'm the least important person if you're really being a good leader. It's about taking a group of people towards a common goal and helping them do things they never thought they could do. So, like, for me, my proudest moment is when somebody on our team does something they didn't know they could do. I think that's awesome. Um, in terms of developing it, I developed it here. You know, I mean, just from being in different groups, and I think part of being a good leader is not always being the leader. So coming out of high school, I was used to being like president of the student body and president of this, and when I got here, I just thought, ooh, volunteer me, I'll be president. It's kind of silly to volunteer to be president of something you know nothing about, right? And so it was a good lesson for me to come in and just be on a team and see other leadership styles and then develop mine. Um, so I think I became a better leader here because I actually wasn't always the leader. You mentioned um, Alicia Kale and yes. um, I think from, in my life, particularly one of the things I could possibly fail at. So is there a way to strategically push yourself outside your comfort zone? Um, I mean, I think you just have to consciously do it. And again, it doesn't have to be like jump off of a cliff like crazy. It could literally be if I look at my normal week, these are the things I do regularly, like routinely. Change one of them. It can be little things, like go a different way, like, you know, go to a meeting you never would have gone to before. Try an activity you never would have gone to before. You know, if outdoor Georgia Tech is going kayaking, go, even if you don't like kayaks, right? Just get yourself in the mindset of trying something you've never tried before that you have no expectations on, and some of it you'll hate, and some of it you'll be like, well, that was actually kind of fun. Um, but in the process, you're going to learn new things, and you're not going to be good at them when you start, right? I mean, if someone took me and when some, somebody did, they took me and put me on a sailboat. I mean, I was petrified that I was going to throw up for an entire week. 
And I had no expectations other than this is going to be a miserable week. <laughs> and it turned out to be this amazing week because I had no expectations. So I, it can be little things. It can be an activity. It could be eating a food you've never eaten before. It could be, you know, finding people that are in a class and going, doing some, an activity with them that you never have hung out with them before. Um, it could be signing up for a class you never thought you'd take. My husband, we met here at Tech, his, his very last semester decided to become well-rounded, because you can do that in a semester, I guess. Um, and he was like, oh, I got all these electives. You know, I'm going to take a science fiction class. Like, that's cool. Right? I mean, he was like, oh, I know nothing about science fiction. I've never had a particular interest in it. Why not? So it can, be, it can be seemingly unimportant things, but slowly it changes your brain to being okay with not knowing how to do something. Because most of us, by the time we get here, most of the stuff we do, we're pretty darn good at. So do something you're not. Yep. So it's interesting. If you think about questions, the key is the first word. Um, most children ask questions that all start with the exact same thing. What is the word? Why? Right? If you have a child in your house, it's like birds. Why? 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 And finally, an adult's like, because I said so. Stop asking. As we get older, we don't ask that anymore. Instead, we ask things like who, what, where, when, how much. Interesting, because who, what, where, when, and how much, those are facts. That's what you know. Why is what you notice. So it goes back to the no versus notice. But I think what happens is as we get older, we stop asking why, because our culture puts more emphasis on knowing stuff than on how you think. Goes back to your point, right? I must not add as much value because I don't know a lot of stuff. I think the best questions always start with why. why. Why have we done it this way, right? Why is the building that way? Why did we do this? Now, the people in the room that know a lot are going to roll their eyes at you and be like, that is a dumb question. And you know what? Dumb questions are the best because deep down, they haven't thought about it either. They just took it as fact and kept going. So asking why, like in my office, my business partner used to get so frustrated because we would have come up with this great idea and we'd be like all the way down the path and I'd be like, well, I mean, really, why are we going to do it like that? And he'd be like, oh my gosh, what is she doing? And I wasn't disagreeing. I was just doing the exercise of why are we doing it that way? And if we had a good answer, then awesome, let's keep going. But nine times out of ten when I said why, we were like, oh. Well, I guess we just kind of started. <laughs> and all too often, momentum happens, right? You start something, and it just starts rolling. And before long, you don't remember why you're doing it that way. So I think the best questions all start with why. And, it's a, it's, and adults don't ask them enough. Like, why can't I build the bridge? Why can't I get the touchdown? Why can't I have a private bridge? You know, it's, it was always why. Why?